0: This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 4th of September 2021 on Monocle 24. hello i'm Georgina godwin broadcasting to you live from midori house in london this is monocle on saturday today our regular guest stephen dear will be here to go through the papers with me plus andrew tuck on going back to school and work
1: people i meet are full of plans hatched out in both cold tents and on sunny lounges. They're fired up for a bit of change, ready for a new term.
0: Andrew Muller will reflect on what we've learned, and I'll share my thoughts on ABBA with you. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Three Taliban sources said the Islamist militia had seized the Panjshir Valley north of Kabul, the last province of Afghanistan holding out against it, although a resistance leader denied it had fallen. If the reports are true, this would give the Taliban complete control of Afghanistan, something they didn't achieve when they first ruled the country between 1996 and 2001. Thailand's prime minister and five cabinet ministers comfortably survived a vote of no confidence in parliament today as activists plan more protests against the government. This is the third censure motion the government has survived. And New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern has vowed to tighten counter-terrorism laws this month after a knife-wielding militant known to the authorities stabbed and wounded seven people in a supermarket. Police shot dead the 32-year-old attacker, a Sri Lankan national, who'd been convicted and imprisoned for about three years, before being released in July, moments after he launched his stabbing spree yesterday. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, it's time now to browse through this morning's newspapers and joining me on the show today is the Russia expert and regular Monocle 24 contributor Stephen DL. Good morning to you, Stephen.
2: Good morning, Georgina. Good morning, everyone.
0: Uh, and you are not, in fact, the only guest in the studio, but I'm hoping you're going to talk a lot and I'm hoping this other guest is going to be very, very quiet. Aren't you, Bella? You're a good dog. <laughs> yes, you
2: just said sit, and I was about to say, well, I'm already sitting down.
0: <laughs> uh, Stephen, of course, all of the papers have an Afghanistan story on the front page.
2: They do, and uh, I'm I'm quite keen just to, to say a few words about this, because what worries me, two things really worry me about, uh, about the whole Afghanistan situation. Uh, one is that news fatigue... Is probably already creeping in, and I hope listeners haven't switched off already. Because oh god, they've mentioned Afghanistan again. You know, it is su- such an important story. It's such a big story. Um, so that's the one thing. You know, we mustn't forget about Afghanistan. Um, it'll go back to the dark ages um, in any case. But it, but some, somehow the West has to keep up some sort of pressure, because the the other one, which is connected to that, is this idea that ah, oh, it's a new Taliban. It's a kind of cuddly Taliban. They're not going to be like they were before. This is nonsense. I had the great honour, I would say, of being in this very studio, in fact, earlier in the week, uh, with Lynn O'Donnell, who's recently come back from there, a fantastic journalist, and um, um, her appreciation, and she speaks very much from a position of knowledge, was these are the same guys. And I asked her after the programme... Um, where does the Taliban finish and ISIS begin? And she said, basically, it's it's kind of one and the same thing. And anyone who expects the Taliban to to want to engage with the West, to uh, to to welcome in NGOs, to help the Afghan people, uh, I'm sorry, they're in cloud cuckoo land. And some of the, I mean, this, you know, this is not just. Uh, people in the general public who have just got their fingers crossed. These are politicians saying this sort of thing. Um, you know, they, they have to be aware of what kind of people these are. These are fanatics. These are absolute fanatics who are just as fanatical now as they were 20, 25 years ago. Um, and uh, they see a particular Afghanistan which has no idea of Western values at all, which has no place for women, which I think is totally outrageous. I mean, there's been great progress made in the last 20 years with women being educated, getting into positions, working hard. Um th- this, this is all going to go. But uh, there is
0: going to have to be some level of engagement on, on both sides. I mean, the Taliban need it because they want to unlock Western funds. And the West needs it if they're going to have any kind of handle on what everybody's saying will be a breeding ground for terror.
2: Well, the West needs it. I think the West needs it more than the Taliban. I, I think the Taliban, if, if the country slides back into poverty, um, it, it's it's quite quite easy for them to control a, a population by fear and by guns, and they have plenty of guns, and um, as, in fact, Lynn O'Donnell said, you know, she said, that one thing they do very well is trade in, uh, in heroin um so they will be getting money from somewhere and you know they're not interested in lifting the the the, the living standards of the population to uh, to modern standards no they're quite happy to stay in the dark ages
0: mm. shall we turn to russia but that's of course your specialist subject um and uh, there is a big piece in the new york times about this wave of immigration
2: yes indeed i mean this is is something which um as you say, is very close to my heart. Um, very good article in the New York Times called Forced to Choose Exile or Prison. And they're pointing out that the wave of emigration, driven by politics now, is bigger than it's been at any time since the collapse of the Soviet Union almost 30 years ago. Um, it's very interesting, I found it very interesting earlier in the year to, to note when Alexei Navalny went back, I saw echoes then of what happened to Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Um, who in 2003, I can remember, September 2003, he was in America and he was uh, interviewed and said, you know, why, why don't you stay here because Putin had already been making threatening noises. Remember, this was a, a young President Putin then, still in his first term, and he had basically said to the oligarchs, those who uh, took made vast sums of money and, and took a lot of political power, look, you... you you keep your money for now, but just keep out of politics. And Holokovsky had had not done that. He'd carried on funding uh, political opposition and so on, and, and he went back, and within two months he'd been arrested and spent the, the next ten years in the Labour camp. And it was very much echoes of that when Navalny was in Germany being treated after the attempted assassination attempt, which clearly was done by the Russian state, and he was asked you know, are you going to go back? And he said, well, it's my country. It's very difficult to be an opposition leader in, in exile. And he went back. And, of course, what happened? He was, he was um, given a, a show trial, uh, very much like Stalin's 30s, and, and put in prison. Um, and what we've seen since then, uh, I, I have even been shocked by the speed with which they've cracked down on, on opposition figures, on all the media. They have labels like foreign agent, and they slap it on on any anyone they don't like either as an individual or as, uh, for example, the the media outlets such as Dojd, which was a very good, well, is still a very good um, source of information uh, online uh, on YouTube. It's a, like a television channel, um, Medusa, which does a fantastic job revealing the truth about Russia. These are now branded as foreign agents. Everything they put out has to say we are a foreign agent. Of course, you ignore that bit, but but um, th- they're really tightening the screw. Um, and the latest is. A woman called Lyubov Sobol, um, who uh, was a great supporter of Navalny, and indeed a very significant political figure in her own right, and she was um, effectively put under house arrest for a year and a half. But it would come into effect in three weeks' time, and this is the the state's way now, very much as the KGB used to do in Soviet times, of saying, "Look, you've got a choice: you either leave the country, or you go to you you go east to Siberia and to a labour camp." Um, And uh, she has now left the country um, because they know, Putin and his cronies know, it's very difficult to run an opposition uh, movement from outside the country. Um, It's a very sad situation. We've got um, Duma elections coming up later this month. Um, Everyone knows that United Russia is going to get the majority of votes, um, at least in theory. They probably won't in practice because there are still people who are prepared Mm. to vote against them. Um, But... um, what we're seeing it's a real brain drain as well this is the other thing these politicians who are leaving these these opposition figures many of them you know they are incredibly intelligent people who could actually develop the country and we're seeing Russia really slip back in terms of living standards, in terms of intellectual standing. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very sad 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union.
0: Absolutely. Stephen, thank you. And we'll have much more from you uh, throughout the show. Now, though, let's hear a few thoughts from Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Here he is with his weekend column.
1: We often take the same route around Regent's Park with the dog, stopping first to get coffee, sometimes rendezvousing with friends. The repetition allows you to catch the daily shifts of the seasons without having to trek out of the city to somewhere truly rural. Today, the vast horse chestnut whose boughs we walk beneath is dotted with spiky cannonballs and its leaves turning brown. It's clear that autumn is waiting in the wings. London has had a disappointing summer, So to think that it's almost over, well, it's a bit annoying. Unlike last year, during the first lockdown, when the sun blazed, this year we've had too many low-slung metallic grey skies. We turned the heat on in August in our house. I cannot remember ever doing that. Yesterday, as I walked to lunch, some people had even given in and had autumn coats on with the collars turned up. One man even had a scarf. September. It hasn't quite been the al fresco summer that had been planned and will not have helped the restaurants and bars that needed the summer boost to refill coffers. And I also imagine that many of the people who were trying to sound jolly about holidays in the UK this summer have already made packs to head to the Med next year. We had dinner with friends on Monday just back from a so-called glamping trip who said they were so damn cold they couldn't sleep. And This sense of both the seasons changing and also the pandemic losing its controlling hand on what we do seems to bring with it other changes too. People I meet are full of plans hatched out in both cold tents and on sunny lounges. They're fired up for a bit of change, ready for a new term. At Monocle, this moment has meant some long days, working on a makeover of the magazine that will shift how it looks, reads and feels. Now, these endeavours always come with a note of caution, and you have to ensure that you don't mess with anything that's truly sacred. Once, when working on the relaunch team for a newspaper, we were warned by the editor-in-chief that under no circumstances could we move the crossword, as that would anger more people than anything else, and you just couldn't face the letters. So, the changes are both meaningful and subtle, and they will let us deliver new regulars, help us consolidate a move to longer reads, introduce new talent from fashion stylists to illustrators, and allow our ever-measured opinions to be sharper on page. Make sure you're signed up for the October issue. This week, for a short piece that ran in the Monocle Minute on Design email newsletter, I found myself on a phone call to Montgomery, Alabama. I wanted to write about a new book called On Common Ground, New Architecture of the American South, that's about a group of Southern States architects. It's by Barrett Austin. It seems a moment ago that he was working for Monocle, first in our New York bureau, and then as our Southern States correspondent. But it had actually been a few years since we had last spoken. And as well as the book, he has a family now and is working on several property projects. It was nice hearing his sentences, dotted with Jarl's, and to be back in touch with someone who had made a meaningful contribution to our success. Dinner in London will happen. When people decide it's time to move on from Monocle, I really try to persuade them to stay if their decisions are clearly considered, and, as with Mr Austin, they obviously have other wonderful adventures ahead. You just hope that paths cross again and that the experience will be valued and useful. I was certainly happy when Barrett said that his years at Monocle had encouraged him to bring out the book with a series of deals that he had brokered that sidestepped the traditional slow publishers. Helping people around you is perhaps the best thing you can get from being an editor, a manager. And again, perhaps it's the leaves changing, the world opening up, new possibilities beckoning, But we're going through a small changing of the guard at Monocle as New Horizons call for some. Louis, an editor of this newsletter, is off to live in Mexico. Hester, on our books team, is off to live in Spain. But hopefully, we'll be writing about their books and their triumphs too in the future. And of course, in return, other people are having their first days at Monocle. So, while the softening of the sunlight The darkening of the evenings may mean another summer over here in London. In the end, I welcome this moment as a time for us all to plan, plot and make anew.
0: Very many thanks there to Andrew Tuck. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined in the studio by Stephen Diel. And Stephen, we are continuing to go through the papers and there is a very good piece in The Guardian. It's an interview with Hilary Mantel, first published in La Republica, and she makes her views very, very clear.
2: <laughs> she does indeed. Um, so it's quite good. We get two newspapers at the price of one here. We get La <laughs> Republica and also uh, and also The Guardian. Um, and... When someone like Hilary Mantel, twice Booker Prize winner, um, very well-known author, it speaks out, then people listen, and it's very interesting to say that she's out now thinking of um, p- applying for an Irish passport because her grandparents were Irish, they so came to came to England, um, and she is now, uh, as she puts it, ashamed to be living in the nation that el- elected this government. Um, she says, We see the ugly face of contemporary Britain and the people on the beaches abusing exhausted refugees even as they scramble to the shore. It makes one ashamed. Um, and uh, one of the great things about Monocle is it's not the BBC and so we can actually um, give our personal opinions too. And, and this is something that I, and certainly many in my bubble, perhaps we should say nowadays, but certainly many people I I know, many of my friends... Uh, feel the same way, that um, it it is quite shocking to see the way um, Britain, which is such a a multicultural country now, fortunately, luckily, um, is is harbouring this really rather nasty nationalism. I I was thinking only this morning... um, on our street, within within touching distance of my neighbours, um, we have an American, we have a Russian, we have a Romanian, we have a German, we have a Cypriot, a uh, Greek Cypriot. Um, it's that That is a microcosm of, of modern London. But somehow a lot of the rest of England doesn't like that. Um, th- this country has benefited so much from immigrants coming in, and the vast majority of immigrants come in wanting to work with skills, with talents, with education, and, and the country benefits as a result. Uh, and particularly in the wake of, of Brexit, which I hope you notice was spelt with a small b, I never put a capital to it, um, it's, it's, it's become shameful that, that people are turning on foreigners and, and thinking, you know, that, that um, uh, oh, we don't want them here. Um, and as I say, someone like Hilary Mantel need, needs to be listened to Um, She says that um, Boris Johnson, um, I agree he's a complex personality, but this much is simple. He should not be in public life, and I'm sure he knows it. Um, We are stuck with a government, uh, and for the next few years at least, because there aren't elections before 2024, um, which doesn't seem to listen to uh, other uh, people other than the lowest form of populism.
0: It's, it's quite extraordinary. I'm thinking uh, here now of Dominic Raab, our Foreign Secretary, uh, who just has, it seems to me at least, dealt with Afghanistan in a uh, particularly incompetent way. And I'm wondering, and many people are wondering the same, uh, and indeed it's the speculation in the papers today, whether he can hang on to his job.
2: Well, this is one of the, the, the trademarks of this government, is that incompetent people hang on to their jobs. Um there was a, a parliamentary commission which criticized Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, and said she had bullied her staff. And in any previous government the result of that inquiry would have been enough for the Prime Minister to say, I'm very sorry, Home Secretary, you've got to go. No, no, no. Boris Johnson turned around and said, No, she I I, I think she's doing a, a splendid job and 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 he and he kept her in post. Um the 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 sheer incompetence of the education secretary, Gavin Williamson. Um and he's still kept in his post. Uh, you know, the only one who's gone, um, was um uh, Hancock as as health secretary, um, but not for incompetence, but because um, he you know he was having an affair with one of his staff, and, and even then and, Johnson
0: tried to keep him. and
2: Johnson tried to keep yeah. him, and then tried to cover it up and say, oh no no, well look here, he went twenty four hours later, but um, his, Johnson's first reaction to be no no, he's doing a splendid job, we'll keep him. Um, it, it's it's like a sort of surreal. Um, world, but unfortunately we're living in it.
0: Yeah, well, Hilary Mantel's uh, interview in The Guardian today, or in La La Repubblica, if you'd like to read it in uh, Italian, is uh, uh, very, very good. Let's move now to uh, Andrew Muller for his take on what the past seven days have taught us.
3: We learned this week that if we fear the consequences of COVID 19, it is probably only because we are either godless heathens, unconvinced that this world is merely some sort of antechamber to the cloud born harp farm where all is peace and bliss, or perhaps that we are sin burdened infidels, well aware that our eternal destination is somewhere rather warmer. <laughs> And we learn this from Tate Reeves, governor of Mississippi. That is a terribly cheap shot, honestly. Do better. (laughs) Governor Reeves, accounting for the laggardly take-up of vaccines among his remaining voters, explained that Mississippians have their minds on loftier concerns than just not dying of more or less avoidable symptoms of a rampaging virus. The governor's words will now be voiced by Monocle's Hellfire and Brimstone desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I'm often asked by some of my friends on the other side of the aisle about COVID. And why does it seem like folks
2: in Mississippi, and maybe in the Mid-South, are a little less scared, shall we say? When you believe in eternal life, when you believe that living on this earth is just a blip on the screen, then you don't have to be so scared of things.
3: There will now be a short pause while listeners take a wild guess which American state has this week the highest per capita rate of new COVID cases in the United States and the second highest per capita rate of overall deaths. No prizes will be awarded at this time. Elsewhere... We continued to learn of the astonishing thin skinnedness of Russia, a nation which is, lest we forget, geographically vast, militarily powerful, culturally marvelous, historically maybe a bit weird, but really, who isn't?
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, we haven't given the General Muttered Agreement file a run for a while, actually. Nice to have it back. Anyway, we learned that the audiences at the comedy clubs for which Moscow is justly renowned will heretofore have to do without the whimsical stylings of Itrak Mirzalizadi, a Belarusian comedian resident in the Russian capital now packing his bags, supervision of which by hatchet-faced stooges in fur hats and greatcoats clutching Kalashnikovs could not be confirmed as this monologue went to air. Mr Mirzalizadeh made a joke which failed to amuse someone at Russia's Ministry of the Interior which has now gonged the hapless japester off in thunderously forbidding terms which will now be translated by Monocle's Russian dudgeon desk chief and producer of this monologue, Christy Evans. Idrak <inaudible> Mirzalizadeh made
0: expressions that incite hatred and enmity towards persons of Russian nationality humiliating their human dignity. In this regard, his presence on the territory of the Russian Federation was recognised as a threatening public order, the rights and legitimate
3: interests of others. Everyone's a critic, but we further learn that such is Russia's hypersensitivity to the slightest slight that even the neighbours are having to tiptoe in a manner of speaking. We learned that as one drives towards Grenzi Jakobselv in the deep north of Norway. Come on, Christy, let's have some howling blizzard wind and polar bears or whatever. The road runs alongside a creek which delineates Norway's border with Russia, and we learned that local authorities have felt it necessary to put up a sign saying no peeing towards Russia. The fact that the sign is in English either suggests that tourists are more of a problem than locals or, and we cannot, we fear, rule this altogether out, that the story is basically nonsense, waved into print around the world under the too-good-to-check clause beloved of journalists. But we did learn, because by golly we do our research, that Norway has had since 1950 dedicated laws governing conduct along its border, specifically prohibiting, quote, offensive behavior directed at the neighbouring state or its authorities. The practical upshot of which we learned is that contributing to the flow of the Selva River can get you three months in the clink. Let's have some twee pastoral English music now. Because, here in the UK, we learned of a more imaginative line in judicially imposed punishments. We learned that a judge in Leicester had sentenced a young man convicted of taking too close an interest in white supremacist nonsense and bomb-making instructions to instead read the works of Jane Austen, Thomas Hardy, Anthony Trollope and Charles Dickens, and to report back to court to be tested on what he'd learned quite possibly to really dislike white English people, if he makes it through that lot. While it is arguable that the beak might have more usefully directed the defendant in this instance towards James Baldwin and Webb Dubois, there might be something usefully deterring in this idea. British crime may well ebb dramatically if miscreants, scoff laws and ne'er-do-wells were threatened on a scale starting at, say, Charlotte Bronte for shoplifting, rising to George Eliot for murder. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: Many thanks to Andrew Muller. Uh, you're listening to Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin, my guests in the studio, Stephen Diel and Bella, who's being a very good dog. <laughs> Our uh, thoughts turn to Matters Sartorial now, Stephen. Yes,
2: well, knowing how Monocle put such store by fashion, um, this story in The Times this morning really caught my eye where chinos and bare shoulders banned as MPs in the uh, British Parliament are told to smarten up. Um, I note also that um, fashion... Is one of the programs on Monocle I've never been asked to uh, appear on, despite the fact that I always try and wear a different t shirt with my jacket. I'm wearing one this morning, which says uh, Romani Ite Domum, uh, which anyone who's seen Life of Brian, it says all over it, in fact, uh, because it is a quotation from the wonderful Life of Brian. Um, But uh, this is it, it's.
0: And your hat, too. Oh, and the hat. Oh, Oh,
2: oh, 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 yes, there's always a hat. The the largest (laughs) brim of all time I'm wearing this morning. Um, But. um, uh, this it, it, all very well. Parliament saying we've got to smarten up because they were told last year MPs, male MPs, were told you don't have to wear a tie. A female MP was told off for showing a shoulder, um, and um, the Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, has said, "No, no, we, you know, this is serious stuff. We've got to look serious. We've got to wear suits and ties, and and ladies must not bare shoulders." Um, but it it's it's playing into this whole debate that's going on at the moment about. How do people dress? How will people dress post-pandemic when people have got used to jogging pants and pyjamas and whatever working from home during the pandemic? Um, And um, shocking news, I believe it was this week, that Marks & Spencer's um, famous retail outlet, of course, are no longer selling men's suits because they don't feel there's a demand for them.
0: Which is extraordinary, isn't it? But, I mean, when was the last time you wore a suit?
2: Um, A suit and tie? A suit and tie. Oh, I did wear. Oh, I went to a funeral recently, and, and that's that, really yeah. when
0: people tend to do it it's with weddings and funerals.
2: Yeah, weddings. Weddings, I wear the kilt. Um, <laughs> funeral, less appropriate. So I did wear. I did wear a suit and tie then. But that was the first time, since uh, be- certainly before March last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: It's absolutely. And I find the span on trainers baffling. I mean, I, I. Tend to wear trainers with everything now. It's just, uh, which is kind of crazy. I've got this wardrobe full of beautiful shoes, and I just never. Well, I,
2: that, that's one that does baffle me a bit because, um, you know, as you know, women often say, you know, if the shoe fits, buy it in every colour, um, <laughs> uh, and it, it's it's a way of uh, it's very feminine. It's a way that women often express their their, their femininity and their their mood um, by buy different sorts of shoes. Um, And it does, it still looks a bit odd to me. I think it's a very American thing which has crept in well before the pandemic where you see a woman smartly dressed in a business suit. But hurrying to the tube and uh, to, to get home, and she's wearing trainers, and she may have well have worn heels or something during mm. the day. Although
0: trainers, are, you get gorgeous trainers now, and I think that it looks—I think it looks really great with um, whatever you're wearing. Personally, <laughs> <laughs> That's my opinion. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much. Before we go, quick word about Abba. Are you happy?
2: Um, I'm sort of fairly numb about all this. I have never seen um, Mamma Mia and I have no intention of doing so, be it on the stage or on the screen. Okay, um, I, I sing along with a few ABBA songs I mean, yes, I, you know, I quite like um, but the idea of a hologram ABBA um, you know, so that they look as if they haven't changed in the last 40 years doing a, some sort of concert tour I find rather bizarre
0: Off you go, Steve I mean, thank you for being here but there is no space for you now in this studio This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is what I think about ABBA It's been a long time since ABBA has even had to think about working to pay the bills. Their worldwide success following the Eurovision win in 1974 with the song Waterloo meant that money would never again be a problem.
1: Watch this one.
0: They're rumoured to have turned down a billion dollars for just one concert. So why are they performing again? The answer is they're not, or not really. Instead, the stars, now all in their 70s, will be represented by avatars of their younger selves. I don't really understand the tech, but it's something to do with motion capture digital technology. Hi,
2: I'm Bjorn. And I'm Benny, and we're here back in London to announce that we have made a new album with ABBA. We have also made a concert, we're working on it, and that will take place just behind us here in a newly built arena for that purpose.
0: There are grumbles about feeling cheated, But I think it's a fantastic idea. I want to see them young and beautiful and in their prime. I want to see the costumes, which on a lithe 20-something look amazing, but I'm not sure how they'd sit on a septuagenarian. But mostly, it's because if I see Abba looking old, then I know I too am old. It has been the soundtrack of my life since I was a small child. And although they broke up when I was in my early teens, the accompaniment continues. From my disco days through traumatic breakup
3: ..and this old families,
2: children would play. Now this only emptiness, nothing to say.
0: And my wedding. Of course, you can guess what I walked down the aisle to. They have been my constant companion. Ah. Why do I care? Why do we care? So many millions of us do. ABBA described our emotions. They touched our souls. To non-ABBA lovers, it was fluffy pop. But the backstory of the band's coupling and uncoupling The variety of songs that went from joy, even euphoria, to despair spoke to all of who we were. tracking so avant-garde back then gave the music tonal as well as emotional depth As ABBA announced not only their visual performances, which will be based in London's Olympic Park, but also a new album, I leave you with this clip from the brand new song, I Still Have Faith, which really says it all. things we did. It all comes down to love. Do I have it in mind? Keep the faith, ABBA lovers. See what I mean? Aren't they great? Stephen's gone, by the way. I couldn't keep him in the studio with that attitude towards ABBA. Uh, that's it for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to Stephen for being here anyway uh, and also to Bella for keeping quiet. I'm Georgina Godwin. of course, the show will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening.